Hey, everybody. Today is Monday, September 7th, 2020. My name is Matt Fury, and you are listening to The Rough Cut. That's right, Monday, September 7th. Would you look at that? It's Labor Day here in the U.S. of A., which would explain why I'm laboring right now. But that's okay. It's a labor of love. I love doing this podcast, which, coincidentally, features a movie about love in this episode. Aw. The movie is The Broken Hearts Gallery, and our very special guest is editor Sean Paper. Prior to his turn on The Avid in this film, you've seen Sean's work in such fan favorites as Parks and Recreation, Girls, Crashing, what We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows. I love that one. Do you watch What We Do in the Shadows? That is a great show. You're going to watch that. Okay, wait a minute. So Parks and Rec, Girls Crashing, What We Do in the Shadows, Veep, Ugly Betty, and Flight of the Concords. Literally just to name a few. You notice a trend there? Sean knows his way around cutting comedy, and that certainly is a topic we hit upon for a stretch in the podcast today. Now, we actually recorded this interview a while back, not knowing when I'd get to share it with you, because like many of the movies that were intended for a theatrical release earlier in the year, its schedule got knocked around for a few different delays by COVID-19. Well, I'm happy to say Sony Pictures' The Broken Hearts Gallery is finally coming out in theaters this Friday the 11th. And being that it's a romantic comedy tailor-made for a summer release, it is kind of nice that it was able to sneak in just under the wire before summer comes to a close. Well, summer in this hemisphere, anyway. Don't ask me what hemisphere this is, I don't even know anymore. But no matter what time of year it is, it's always a good time to talk with Sean about editing and about editing comedies. He certainly logged enough time doing just that. In our talk today, we discuss the hidden challenges of cutting seemingly simple three-act romantic comedies, the differences and similarities between cutting comedy for TV and film, as well as how diegetic versus non-diegetic sound can affect how an audience feels about a scene. And while I'm Googling what diegetic means, let me tell you a little more about the amazing sounds that come from our sponsor, Extreme Music. You want your romantic comedy to sound even more romantic or even more comedic? It all starts with having great music, diegetic or not. Ah, here it is, diegetic. Adjective. Occurring within the context of the story and able to be heard by the characters. Huh. So that's what he meant. All right. Either way, for over 20 years, Extreme Music has been providing visual storytellers with the best in production audio from the most talented composers, musicians, producers, and the like, so that you can go to their fun and easy-to-use website, extrememusic.com, to search for and license just the right tracks for your projects. You can search on just about any kind of keyword, and it will serve up some great music for you to choose from. So show your film or TV show the love it deserves and visit Extreme Music to give it the best music out there. Okay, the wait and the heartbreak is over. It's time to talk to our special guest today, editor Sean Paper. This is the other job that you ought to do. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because there's actually something I want to talk to you about in that vein with your new film. Offhandedly, the first question I have is, why is the title The Broken Hearts Gallery? Because when in the movie, they say Broken Heart Gallery. So to answer your question solely based on facts, I have no idea how they (laughs) changed it or why they changed it. As we record this, the film doesn't have a release date yet, which is not surprising because that's, there's a few things that are going on in our world right now. And one of which is just the whole theatrical schedule and and what's going on with that. But I'm going to save that for a second because the other thing that's going on right now is it's Emmy season. You yourself uh, nominated for an Emmy for your work on Veep, also nominated for an Ace Eddie, I believe. That's right. And I just wanted to ask you about how an editor getting nominated for any kind of award, what kind of impact does that have on your career? 
how important is it to you? Uh, everyone's very casual about it in a lot of ways, but also at the same time, you can see that they really care. Well, to feel that your work is being seen and recognized, and, and especially if there's toil involved, which there is in, in the labor of love of editing, to get recognized for your work is always something that puts a, you know, a little spring in your step. And I spoke with several of my peers who were nominated yesterday and wished them well, and they were so excited. But in this particular instance, I think it's kind of strange because they're not anticipating any parties right. of virtual situation. So editors, you know, we don't get out that much. So when we do have an opportunity to get together and uh, celebrate each other, I think it's a very specialized introspective place. And I think that we really do enjoy the moments when we do get to go out. And for me, I love going out and, and playing dress up. I love putting on a tux. I love pretending that I'm James Bond for an evening. <laughs> Who doesn't? So I believe it's a lot of fun. And I think everybody's really excited. And the people who I've worked with who've just gotten an Emmy, um, all deserve it. It's a really wonderful celebration of the hard work that they put into it. And uh, how does it affect their career? I don't know. Ask my agent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, it probably helps put my resume in front of somebody's face and, you know, have the opportunity to actually sell them on myself if it's a project that I'm gunning for. You know, it's another feather in your cap. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The other thing that's going on right now, and as we've talked about, is the theatrical release situation. And things are happening daily. Like just today, I believe Universal and AMC just announced an agreement where they're going to shrink the theatrical release window from three months to three weeks. So after a film is in the theaters three weeks later, it could be available on demand, which is amazing. So there's just so much, I don't want to say confusion, but there's so much to be rationalized right now in terms of how movies are released. As much as possible, they want to release it in the theaters. But... Even before the pandemic, I feel like the lines between TV and films were blurring uh, with the streaming and, and just also the quality of what's, what's going on in television. You've done films before. Yes. This is probably your biggest film today. I would say it's probably the best film that I've done so far, notwithstanding Jack Frost 2, The Revenge of the Mutant Snowman, which still is a cult classic. You set a pretty high bar with that one. Yeah. <laughs> but what, I, what, what I'm curious about is, for you as an editor, having done so much work in television and a lot of great work in television, do you approach the job differently for you? Is there a, not just a creative difference between working in film and television? Because I don't think the creative part is so much of it, just, but just the process and just the rigor of doing the job. It depends on the job. I think all the experiences that I've had up until now have certainly prepared me for the moment where I can jump into a seat and get the wheels turning. Yeah, everybody has their own origin story. But what I found in getting to the process of this film was that I did spend more time with a smaller team. Usually, if, if you're in a uh, television situation and it works right and the synergy's there, you are able to bounce ideas with a bigger post department before the director and the executive producer come in and mold it. But the process for a film is like the process of a pilot, especially if it's a lower-budget film, very quickly paced. There's a 10-week window to get this thing done or to a locked place, and you're operating in a vacuum with the director or the director-producer really intensely until that first screening, and then, it, you know, and then you have to you know, lock the picture and move on. So the process is different from 
bigger budget films because they have to work on the visual effects and there are plans for reshoots and whatnot. And on the course of a six-month to ten-month period where you're creating several different episodes and you're juggling three or four episodes and taking them across the finish line while you're still keeping up with dailies, it's a different sort of process than the process of creating something from whole cloth at once and getting everything right, developing the tone, the musical palette, uh, the rhythm, and the cutting style. Something I should ask you is how you came to be on this project. Uh, Broken Hearts Gallery was something that my agent loved. And Robin Sheldon from Artistry has impeccable taste and a really very personal approach about projects that she thinks I would gel with and fit with and my particular contribution would be most helpful. The other thing that I love about what I do is I get to immerse myself into a different culture, a different pastime, a different world. And the research of that allows me to become sort of an armchair expert on a subject. So when I was up for Mozart in the Jungle, I was very excited because I had to school myself in classical music so that when the time came up that I had to find a temp track to support um, a baseball game montage that I was doing, I had to find a first movement rondo that was in 6-8 time. You don't just give that to your assistant? <laughs> You know, I, I love having my assistants work on, on particular scenes, but then there's also scenes that I say, this is something that I, I, I want to touch this one. This is something that I think I really want to, uh, something that needs to be born from the connections of all the neurons in my head with the footage on the screen and the other arsenal that I have at my tips. So I do love giving my uh, assistants opportunities to both cut and insight and import, but there's always the particular scenes that I really want to do. Sometimes I'll flip a coin if, in a, if it's a group cutting situation, but uh, I, oftentimes, you know, if, if I've got a feeling that, that it's something special that I really need to create from the ground up. Well, you said something early on in our discussion about, you know, being a puzzle solver and a code breaker. It's kind of forcing me to jump ahead a little bit in my line of questioning, just because there's one that um, I was really looking forward to asking you about. In a romantic comedy, is a tried and true formula. And that's not a bad thing. You know, an act structure is not a bad thing. Um, but before getting ready to talk to you about this, I had never really thought about the challenge of doing a film like this, which is a fairly lighthearted romantic comedy, your, you know, your classic summer fun movie. But the more that I thought about it and how it's constructed, it feels like you have much less margin for error to get films of this nature to work. And so much of the work you've done, what we do in the shadows, V, Parks and Rec, Flight of the Concords, Ugly Betty, it's a pretty awesome lineup. Um, but in works like that, it feels like you can challenge the audience a little more with the characters and the structure and the pacing. But when you have a 90-minute romantic comedy, you have to hit certain notes and at just the right pitch. Otherwise, it's just not, it's just not going to work. So the first thing that I want to ask you about is this. In this kind of structure, you know there's going to be conflict. You know, you can't get out of the second act without it. And as a filmmaker, you have to find a way for the audience to like your characters through that conflict. You know, they have to be believable as much as they can with their flaws, you know, that they have to have, but still be redeemable as well. So I, I guess the first thing I should ask is, after my rambling dissertation there, do you agree with that? And second, you know, how much effort is actually put into that one part of it? Because it feels like the first assembly might not be too tough, but getting that tone and just refining the edit seems like it would be a lot harder than the other type of work you've been doing before. And I, I could be way off. 
all the other work that I've done has sort of brought me to this moment. I couldn't have cut this the way I did if I hadn't have worked on grills with Judd Apatow for six years. Learning from him the tricks of the trade and Nick Stoller, who, who also had a, a very particular ask when he came into the cutting room. So I think honing my experience and, and what we do in the shadows to some extent, but there's a lot more tricks you could do to in, in what we do in the shadows to advance the story and get that point across. So I wanted to find a way to do this as elegantly and seemingly simply as possible. So there are a lot of hidden visual effects in this film to, you know, split screens and different things to shape characters that are underneath the hood. But I think your analysis of the boxes you need to check to get a rom-com from the end of the first act to the end is spot on. You do have to follow those conventions to get you there, but that's just a, um, a guidebook, not a roadmap. You have to follow the course of what the actors and the characters are taking you through. I remember one of the earlier drafts that I read, I thought um, Natalie Krinsky lovingly and I think quite auspiciously brought me on early, which I, I love being brought in early in the process and offering my notes and suggestions from the earlier part of the script. And I thought, you know, I think that I'm missing a rivalry scene between the two love interests. We need to have a standoff. And she said, oh, yes, you're right, that we do need to have that moment. And she came back two days later with two amazing scenes. And that was not something that you don't necessarily have to have in a rom-com. But I thought, wouldn't it be greater if we see our protagonist have to make this choice, have to take the measure of each man and come up with a decision and a decision which leads her down a certain path which may or may not get her to the feel-good rom-com ending and we also had the luck of casting arturo castro who worked on broad city he came in and he was only supposed to be in two scenes and he turned out to be such a wonderful comic sidekick to the main character to dacre montgomery I was editing in Toronto, and they were shooting a couple streetcar stops away. And when I was done at the end of my day, I would go down and on my iPhone, I would show Natalie scenes that I was working on. And we both saw how Arturo Castro and Dacre Montgomery working together made this such a fun bro comedy. And so we thought, why don't we expand Arturo's character and bring him into other scenes? And, you know, he has this amazing, really small scene with Roy Choi. And that's the beginning of this person's character. So we injected this bit of a brocom in the middle of this rom-com. And I think that that just made it less of a, um, a conventional straight journey through a rom-com to something where there are more elements involved with it. And we felt the same way about Lucy's Girlfriends, who are amazingly played by Philippa Sue and Molly Gordon. Unexpectedly, they showed up on set and their camaraderie and the improvs rehearsal that these people had together were so good that we added more of them. And uh, they got to play in, re in, in rehearsal and ad lib outside of the walls of the script and coming from the world of what we do in the shadows and parks and rec oftentimes the funniest stuff is stuff that has nothing to do with the actual journey of you know of the driving horse of the plot well you brought up natalie krinsky the director and writer 
Yes. Since you've illuminated that point of like being on set with her, being able to show her stuff that you're working on in progress on your iPhone, she's a first-time director. Going into this project, did you think, okay, I might have to lean in a little more because I'm working with a director who it's their first time out um, and it's something that they've written and obviously they're very close to? Well, from the beginning, Natalie was a collaborator and, at, at, and then we became co-conspirators together. When I would come at the end of the day to set and show her what I did, we would we would sit in a corner and 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 they were they would be setting up another shot and I would we would go in the back of the stairwell and uh, we would just sit there and giggle and laugh and conspire to augment Arturo's character. So uh, we had a chance to play with that. I think that the jobs that I enjoy the most are the ones where I am asked to be more present and allow me to use my skill set as a storyteller to be more than a button pusher. I mean, I've worked on some really, really good shows where my opinion was less important and, you know, I was the operator. Because I think as an editor, you, you can't make an edit unless you have an opinion. You have to have an opinion and a judgment of the characters in the scene, even though it's it might be on the page, a quick understanding of whose scene it is or what the arc of a scene is. I like to find that organically from the dailies and the footage. And I told that to Natalie. I said, this, that's how I like to work. And she says, that's amazing. I'd love to have that opportunity to be able to do that. And I never thought of her as a first-time director because she was so intelligent and intuitive and empathic to everybody on the set. She ran a really... Uh, I was surprised that she was a first-time director. She was super talented. I always felt that I was in good hands, and, and I think that uh, we all felt that, and I think she chose her team really well. And great casting directors. We all brought our A game because I think she brought that out in us. So to have a director who is perhaps because it was her first feature, I don't know. She was so invested to a point that the passion was infectious. Continuing our thread on the notes that you have to hit, that next note, and you've touched on this, is pacing. And that's a challenge with every story. But again, I think rom-coms are a lot less forgiving. They need to move. Yes. You know, therefore, you have to get a lot of story points in efficiently and coherently. And you have some familiar techniques that you employ quite effectively in this film. And as familiar as they may be, again, I never really thought about how you go about doing them. You talked about montages, for example. You, know, you can script and shoot for those, but as you talked about in your collaboration with the director, where you plan on having them might not work. But just talk a little bit about how you approach doing a montage, because you've already talked a little bit about, about music driving things. And that's such an effective tool for moving the story forward and also getting that information out there. Absolutely. Well, montage is shorthand for collapsing time and rolling into the next important beat of the story that jumps from one act to the next. There was a point in the middle of the film where we had collapsed three days of scenes into one montage. Once we started to see the Broken Hearts Gallery starting to take off, there were several more exposition scenes that really didn't need to happen, but we wanted to see the characters evolve and the characters get to know each other. And it seemed like a perfect place to do a montage. But there's several different pieces to this kind of story, not too dissimilar from what we do in The Shadows, where we'd have the artistic pictures of vampires, uh, you know, the medieval paintings of devils we would bring in to help tell the stories of vampires. We had these interstitial moments 
of the gallery and you know the multimedia aspect of the gallery that were always going to be shot. And I wanted to find organic ways to put them in and punctuate what we've just seen. So we took a, a bit of time to figure out whose broken heart story would we want to use as commentary for the scene. But there was one moment where we did have to cover a lot of ground and it would have been another eight minutes of film to have the gallery being built. And there were some really good scenes, but we only needed to see them in tableau. But they also had to incorporate with these interstitials. And I like to use my own temp music, but this is one scene that had four or five different dialogue scenes that kind of interconnected with the building of the gallery. And, and in this particular montage, I'm pro and I'm probably giving too much away here, but uh, just to illustrate the point, there's a scene that has eight different elements in, in a montage that you have to hit each point. It's really hard to find a song or a score that would do that. So when we were looking out for composers, we auditioned them by giving them this montage that was built of eight different beats that had to start, stop, and not compete with dialogue, but drive the scene forward and connect with the interstitials and build the gallery. And from the submissions we got back, Genevieve Vincent had made this thing what we wanted it to be, which didn't exist in any piece of music that I tried to put against it, which was this, um, sounded like the voice of our main character, Lucy, sort of a poppy, effervescent, delightful muse that seemed like very New York and very now, and this millennial sort of soundtrack that would be inside her head that moved it along. And we played it against it, and we laughed at the points that we had thought we could try to get a laugh. And we felt the movement of the piece. We felt it drive it without overcoming it. And this was one of those scenes where we knew that that's what it had to be, but the music didn't exist for it. And we immediately hired Genevieve, and she brought, you know, brought the show to the next level with that. So you mentioned these interstitials. There's another element, I call them confessionals, Yes. where characters talk to the camera, right. sort of like when Harry met Sally. Um, and, you, and you almost use these like punctuation. Yes. And is, is that the same idea is that you're looking for breakpoints or just sort of resets? Is that how you employ these kind of techniques? I think if they didn't fit organically or help to substantiate the story, then we didn't use them. But where we did use them were ways to further the story, get a little bit of further depth into the character that we've just talked about. And the confessional was used to highlight this strange world of beautiful people. And I think all the supporting casts all seemed idiosyncratic in the most wonderful way. Each person was very distinctive. So I loved finding that. And these confessionals, I think, were, in many instances, the actors' real-life events. I think that this, some of this stuff was, they were allowed to bring their mementos or broken heart moments together into the story. And I remember they had, on set every week, they had a suggestion box where they asked everyone on the crew to drop in a broken heart story and the winner would get a bottle of wine or uh, their story would be one of the interstitials. And each story made this that much more personal because to a larger degree, one of the reasons I believe that Sony really wants to see this out in a theater is because I think this is something that we all should experience in a larger group. 
I think every time we watched this film with either a focus group or screening for a test audience, you get a lot of insight about what works and what doesn't work and where it lands and what we need to work on. But we knew from the beginning that the collective audience participation is infectious and it adds to the theater going experience in a way that you don't feel that at home. But when we started off talking about the differences, the discrepancies between working in television and working in film, that audience screening element, something that comes up a lot in these discussions, something you don't typically have in television, does that make it that much more challenging that you don't have that feedback, especially in comedy, where the judgment comes down to a few people of is this funny or not? Right. And maybe it is hysterical, but a larger audience just it doesn't resonate with. Does that make it a little harder for you in television to feel that you got both feet underneath you when you're cutting comedy? For me, I think it's part of the evolution of my career is, a, is that I've hopefully have honed my spidey sense to be able to see what's funnier and what's not. And what's funnier if I hold on a shot for an extra eight frames. So the timing of telling a joke, I think comedians say that, you know, the best way to get good at comedy is to just do comedy all the time. And that's one of the reasons that I worked on Crashing with Judd Apatow. Judd said that we're going to really try to tell the story of what it's really like in the comedy cellar in New York and working the circuit of a comedy. And I learned a lot from them about the comic timing from a, from a, a comedian's perspective on a stage and how they work the audience. And I had to find a way to understand that, make it true to them. Okay, well, if an audience giggled, their giggle was a seven on this their laugh has to be a nine response to the way that this joke evolved. And in the art of narrative compression, which an editor has to do to take a five-minute comic stand-up routine, make it feel like a contiguous piece in 40 seconds, I had to learn comedy from a world of complete authenticity and within the language of cinema. To learn how to do that, and I think that's something that I learned by cutting some really good and really funny actors and really smart EPs. And so my own personal journey allowed me to sort of be an instrument where I could tell the amount of time it took to, take, to make a joke funny or if it, the joke was funnier um, off camera or in a case like Veep, if I can make a joke that's three layers deep and meta and in the background that it's not until the fourth viewing that somebody's going to find another hidden laugh I think these are things that I was lucky enough to have learned on some great projects, and I get to bring that those tools to um, to a show like this and bring my comic sensibility to it. Well, Veep must be pretty fertile ground because um, you reminded me of a discussion I had with uh, another editor, Ant Boys, his friends call him Pants, who worked on Veep, and we were talking about cutting comedy. And his touch point was stand-up. He said you should really you know, work on stand-up, pay attention to stand-up because of those timing elements. Absolutely. And it's fascinating to hear you mention that. Was well, something I asked him, and I've asked a lot of people this about cutting comedy. I'll ask them, can you, can you learn it? Or are there techniques for it? And sometimes people will just say, no, either you're funny and you get a joke or, or you don't. Other times people will actually have certain rules of thumb that they go by. So you mentioned just sort of staying on a shot another eight frames. Are there techniques? guidelines that you use in, in cutting comedy? In, in the final analysis, if it makes me laugh, then it works. So 
whatever gets me to that point. And as a comedian learns how to work an audience and dig themselves out of a hole if they're not doing a good set or they're you know working on material and, and they're evolving an anecdote to become a really good joke, I think editors have to do that too. Sure, I, I think we have an innate ability. And I think that, what do they say about learning an instrument or learning a craft? You, you have to do it at least five years for you to start doing it well. It just takes a lot of time until the techniques that you have become second nature. And some of the techniques in a show like the style of comedy that Jermaine and Taika use in what we do in The Shadows and what we did in Flight of the Concords is to extend the awkwardness of a joke. And the comedy often lies in the awkward pauses. That's not so true of Veep um, or Parks and Recreation. It's often the reaction or there are different uh, comic styles that you know are funny. You know, um, anticipation, you know, the whole, the, is it funnier to watch Charlie Chaplin slip on a banana peel out of the blue? Or is it funnier to know that the banana peel is down the street and, and then see him walk so that you know that's going to happen? These are things that you learn in film school. You learn from good movies. And then you go Picasso with it. Then you get to a point where you know the rules and you see where you can stretch them, where you can break them, where you can inject something that's more poignant or meaningful in it. And in a case like this, this was a rom-com that we really wanted to get jokes in. And Natalie was just, her script was so funny. And she had alt jokes for each moment. And sometimes the jokes were really good, but they were at the sacrifice of the emotion of the moment and, you know, ended up in the cutting room floor. But this is something that um, we had in Veep and Parks and Rec that our first cuts, or and Flight of the Concords, our first cuts on this half-hour show were 45- and 50-minute really good comic shows. And they could exist that way. But sometimes comedy is that much sharper when you bring it down to a terse 27 minutes. But that's almost half the original shooting script. So finding a way to distill comedy, and I think as you're pointing out, rightly so, in rom-com, you have to get those points across without belaboring it. And so I think comedy asks you to be a clock watcher and really understand timing. And I think that informs every other part of cinematic storytelling. And everybody has their own tools in their toolbox to get them there. But I think we all have to realize that timing and the audience's internal clock is something that you always have to be aware of, certainly when you're in the room cutting, to make sure that you're riding their time and you're riding like you're in a horse race and you're pacing it just right. Well, we've talked plenty about the visual aspects of comedy, extending a shot, extending an awkward moment. We should rightly talk about sound and how it plays into comedy and just how it plays into storytelling in general. I recall, you know, when watching the film, there were moments where I could feel there was less of a sound treatment going on. I think the first time I noticed it was, uh, you know, Nick and Lucy, the main characters, are meeting up, I think, in a diner after their first initial meeting. And it felt a little more real. It felt a little more like the sound was all just natural. I didn't feel like there was too much sound design. When that sound goes away and gets a little quieter, the viewer is drawn in just that much more. You're right on about that, and I haven't spoke with anybody recently who has noticed that, but A, you do want to go for verisimilitude in a story that you want people to connect with, and 
I think that with the bells and whistles of sound design, you can go overboard with it. But I've come to a point in my career where I've realized that simple's better. And to trust the audience to be smart enough and to invest enough, if they've come so far into a movie that they see Nick and Lucy sitting together without too much sound design, that you're living with a moment and you're comfortable and you want to be there. So that's something that I learned from Mike Schur in Parks and Recreation, and it's something that we also used on Veep, is that sound was there to augment when needed, was there to be removed when it becomes evident. Because you do want to feel the world that you're in, and unless you're on a spaceship and you need the sound of the warp drive, you don't need to have that underfoot. And in fact, you know, put that in the background. And I think this came out of the MTV generation when we had to add soundtrack to everything and i you know and i've certainly been on shows where music was wall to wall and i think that's more in, in the case of procedurals and dramas where you do need to have the thumping drive of the momentum of the scene to kind of keep pushing your pace but i think that non-diegetic has its place in a certain type of genre and i think diegetic music and diegetic sound is something that I'm conscious of. And I think that, I, and I firmly believe that, that that helps or goes against the sensation, especially in comedy and in stories that are meant to be rooted in and grounded, that you, you have to be careful of where you use non-diegetic music. So before we wrap things up, you have said a few times that the work you've done to this date is what's what's led you to this point. You're on this film because of the work that you've done in your past. So I think it's uh, only appropriate to ask you, what do you take away from your experience on this film? What have you what have you learned? What's in your bag of tricks now? Moving on to the next project. I think um, the editors that have just gotten Emmy nominations have just been given a reassurance that their instincts are right. And I think that that's something that grows with every project that you work on, if you're lucky. And sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. But I think as filmmakers, as artists, we're always evolving. As human beings, we're always evolving. And every time you do get a little bit of encouragement or you get some insight or a collaboration has worked well, you take that with you and feel that you want to take that to the next project. You want to be able to be more sure, more collaborative, have your eyes a bit more expansive because you've just had that last good experience. And if it hasn't been a good experience, to walk away with a takeaway is certainly something that you know helps you evolve as a person, and that goes just as much for an artist. Well, I'm going to get to work on my own personal involvement, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Gee, Sean, did you have to laugh so hard at that? I admit, I'm a work in progress. But part of evolving as a human is to keep your mind open to learning new things, and Sean certainly delivered on sharing his knowledge of storytelling here today on the podcast. A big thank you to him for his time and expertise. Again, the Broken Hearts Gallery is out on Friday the 11th of September, so check it out and see Sean's work firsthand. Hey, speaking of Broken Hearts, mine would be absolutely shattered if you didn't check out the latest version of Avid Media Composer. Whether you know Media Composer already, or you've just been standing over there in the corner of the room waiting for it to ask you out, now's your chance. You can start off slow and steady with the free Avid Media Composer first, or you can jump right into the unbridled Avid Media Composer, more powerful and more affordable than ever before. Okay, that will do it for this episode. 
I want to thank all of you for listening, especially those of you who've been checking out the podcast for a while now and have been telling friends about it. I can see that and I definitely appreciate it. You guys are the best. And to show you how much I love you, I'll get right back to work on next week's show. Until then, this is Matt Fury thanking you for joining me right here on The Rough Cut. We'll be right back.